0: Welcome to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is a candidate for Congress in Oregon's 4th Congressional District, Andrew Kalick Andrew, welcome to the
1: show. Thanks so much, Patty. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So this is really cool. This is a big seat. Uh, you will be running for a seat to replace an icon, Peter DeFazio, who has held office for 37 years. So most of both of our lives, obviously, I think we're around That's the true. same age group. So I'm just going to get right into it and start with uh, what it means, what it will mean to re, you know to replace an icon like Peter DeFazio, and what new leadership can mean for Oregon.
1: Yeah. Many people have said, you know, you've got big shoes to fill. In. And my my response to them is, yeah, those are not fillable. I mean, Peter is a sort of uh, one of a kind figure in DC uh, and in this district. Uh, he's had an extraordinary career. Uh, and I, I'm grateful for his service. Uh, he he has uh, dug in in Congress, uh, learned the ropes, uh, risen up the ladder of seniority, and he's brought results here. Um, and that matters to people. Uh, and so I think we'll miss Peter. Uh, but I do think it is time um, with Peter's retirement to think about what we want and that next generation of leadership for Oregon. We have some extraordinary challenges facing us uh, as millennials, Patty, uh, but also more broadly as a a society in the 21st century, whether that's climate, economic opportunity, education, criminal justice reform, and rebuilding the fabric of our democracy, which is at the foundation of all of it. Uh, We need new approaches to how we, we get these things done because I walk around this district and talk to people, and I can't find that many people who think Congress is doing what it needs to do to tackle those problems. And I am committed to bringing a new type of leadership with a new, with a new and different perspective. Uh, and that is how I'm going to try to uh, to approximate what Peter's been able to do for this district. One thing that I I think Peter's absolutely right about, and that I'm going to try to continue with his legacy, is a spirit of independence. Peter has always said he's as independent as Oregon. I think that's incredibly important. Now more than ever, when we see the polarization and the partisanship in DC, I'm a Democrat. I have been my entire life. My parents were public school teachers. They raised us as labor Democrats. Uh, But I'll tell you right now that I am going to Washington uh, to serve the people, not the party. They are the folks who I swear an allegiance to. And I think that's incredibly important, not just for Oregon, but for the nation at large.
0: And I think, you know, talking about the party, I think that what we're going to see in this primary is a lot of different representation from the party. You know, I mean, I know you're talking about representing the people and that's vital, but we're going to see a lot of different types of candidates and that's what i wanted to have you on today to spotlight i'm going to have doyle canning on as well another candidate my my goal is to do stories of the underrepresented so people that may be not getting a lot of coverage and so that's when i saw that you were running uh i, w- I really wanted to talk to you and yeah peter defazio i know people that are not in the the political spheres or the party spheres that really liked what he was doing especially up for the holiday farms fires you know, the recovery, he was, he was active very quick, you know, and so the boots on the ground approach really is important. So there's so much to talk about today. So we're not going to be able to do all of it. So I really encourage people, and I'm going to talk about this over and over today to go to your website, uh, andrewkallick.com. The link will be in the show notes. It's K-A-L-L-O-C-H. And, and I'll, I'll tell you that again later in the show so that, you know, you can go there after we're done talking. Uh, let's talk about some of the key issues. I'd like to spotlight three of them. The number one issue that you, you listed on your on your website is climate change. Uh, so, I mean, I agree that it is the number one issue because without worrying about that, you know, the rest of it is kind of moot. So, you know, what are some of your plans?
1: Sure. So, uh First of all, I think it's important to see climate change not just as a priority that's ranked alongside other priorities, uh, but a priority that should affect every single piece of legislation that gets before Congress. Um, We've realized in the last decade how important it is to have what people refer to as an equity lens on everything that government does. Uh, Similarly, we need to have a climate lens. And so that's why when I'm talking about this with folks, I say there's no such thing as a climate bill. Every bill is a climate bill. The Farm Bill needs to be leveraged as a climate bill for regenerative agriculture. Nobody knows the effects of climate change more than our farmers. The Defense Bill, the Defense Department says that climate change is the number one uh, challenge to American national security. We need to use that bill every year uh, to advance the ball on certain climate objectives. And then, of course, we do uh, need to have climate policy that meets the moment. And for too long, we've had politicians, I think, on both sides of the aisle, um, but particularly, you know, I'm I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to talk about Democrats for a minute, um, who have set ambitious targets but have not necessarily followed through on the concrete plans needed to reach those targets. And I'm not about the ribbon cutting. I'm not about the, the, the rhetoric of that, that target. I'm about getting down to brass tacks and getting it done. So uh, you can read more about this on the website, but there's a few ideas in particular. First, I think it's important that as a baseline, we make sure that corporate America discloses its carbon footprint and enacts policies that require – Uh, uh, It to do their part, because this is going to take everybody. It's going to take individual action. It's going to take corporate action. It's going to take government action. Next, we need to electrify everything. And what that means uh, is that we have to vastly increase the amount of uh, wind and water and solar power generation right here in Oregon, especially on the south coast. Uh, of, of this district, uh, it's the number one place in the country has been targeted uh, as as a wind power generation source. We need to be that laboratory for wind technology, uh, and we should be using public rights of way uh, for solar. Uh, no reason not to. We we can do this, but we have to leverage everything at our disposal. And then the last thing I'll mention is that climate is also about making sure that we have a just transition to that fossil-free economy, and so how do you make sure that lower-income people, people in rural Oregon, don't bear the brunt uh, of the costly transition? And it will be there will be costs associated with it. I think that's important to say. Um, and like previous generations who have had to sacrifice for the greater good, we will have to make some sacrifices. Uh, But those sacrifices shouldn't fall on the the shoulders of of the least fortunate. And so I, I support a carbon dividend system like they have in British Columbia that provides basically a check. Um, to lower income and, and rural communities um uh, so that they don't face the brunt of this transition and I think that's extremely important to keep in mind as we talk about climate
0: that's the thing that you know for a follow-up I'd like to say it's like the difficult challenge of this is convincing some of the people in the rural community like you're saying and it's so important because a lot of times they're they don't they're not interested in subsidies they're not interested in a, in a handout in their in their mind but it's just that's the reality that we're facing so I mean, what would you say to someone if you're in someone's home? I don't know how it's going to look on the campaign trail because COVID still is, is there, you know, but you're going to be knocking on doors for people that are of the opposition because you're going to have to win some of them over to win this election, you know, come November. So when you're looking in the eyes of somebody in a rural community and, and they're a farmer, for example, what do you say to them about climate change?
1: Yeah, so what, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's nobody who understands the effects of climate change more than farmers, than loggers. Than fishermen seeing the rise of ocean temperatures and acidification. And of course, just from every Oregonian who loves to go and camp in the woods, right? Like, this is something that affects everybody. And everyone wants to breathe clean air and drink clean water and be able to enjoy the incredible uh, sort of glories of Oregon. Uh, and so I think if you we start with that baseline understanding and that common set of values, I think that's very important. Uh, it's important not to start with heat, as I say. It's not to be accusing people of, of, uh, you know, uh, obstructionism or anything like that. Um, I think you try to start with that baseline level of shared values. And then you can have a conversation with all those stakeholders about the best way to achieve the outcome we all want, which is a sustainable planet with a solid economy. And so if I'm talking to that person in, in rural America, what I'm saying is, look, we have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. There's no other way around it. We do. And we understand that for a century or more, we have built a society uh, around easy access to petro, really, uh, to gasoline. Uh, And so people in rural Oregon, including right here in this district, they often have to travel 50, 60 miles each way uh, just to go to 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 work. Um, And that's not going to change overnight. And so what what we're trying to do is ensure that just transition. And yeah, I understand the the concern about subsidies, um, but just like we have uh, incredibly powerful anti-poverty programs like the earned income tax credit that can help people make work pay, this is the same type of idea. It's, It's making sure that people in rural America aren't actually bearing the brunt of this. And I feel like that's important, especially for Democrats, because people in rural America often think that Democrats are ignoring them. They don't understand or respect their way of life. I do. Uh, I absolutely do. And I think that we need to make sure that that's clear to them, not only by showing up and listening to them and, and, and respecting uh, their communities and seeing a future for them, but also in in policy itself.
0: Yeah. And it just, I mean, it takes trust from the, on their part, you know, and it also just takes on, on your part, it takes just hearing them, listening, you know, and sure. that, and that's the thing that the trust is, is really, it's going to be a, a, a big obstacle, but I think we can do it. So let's talk about economic opportunity. I mean, I think that the most important issue to people right now is inflation and record corporate prof- profits, you know, because I mean, we hear inflation, 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 and there's all these people that want to talk about what's causing it. You know, I mean, it's some people still want to use the narrative that it's because people are sitting at home collecting unemployment. And that's just not true. I mean, those days for, from COVID uh, quarantine, that's done, you know, and so, you know, what are, what are... uh what are your thoughts on that, and 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 why that's so important? E- economic yeah, opportunity, is, you know.
1: Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's no, it's no surprise to anybody that you know when uh, when the CEO pay is rising at an extraordinary rate, there's no concern about inflation. And isn't it isn't it convenient that right when workers seem to have a little bit of power, all of a sudden there's concern about inflation? So yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's a tough issue. Uh, inflation is a a very complicated. Question and I think it's important not to overpromise as a member of Congress that I can sort of go in there and snap my fingers. Uh, but what I what I do think is important is that we get back to an America where economic opportunity is broadly shared and where the fruits of uh, our collective uh, prosperity are uh, appropriately shared. And so I, I think first of all we have to we have to reverse major portions of the Trump tax cut. Um, uh, which is really, you know, a tax cut is giving it too much credit. So it was a giveaway to the wealthy in corporate America. Um, And so I think, you know, corporations don't pay their fair share in the United States right now. There's all sorts of different loopholes that allow them to get out of paying billions of dollars in taxes to Medicare and all sorts of other critical programs. Uh, And so, you know we need to address that um and we also need to address uh you know the rising uh ceo pay and and the 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 emphasis on buying back stock and giving dividends to shareholders instead of delivering uh quality jobs and and family wage uh jobs to people so i think that that's very important um uh, but you're you're right i think more broadly that economic opportunity and concern about you know what what are the jobs of the future uh is of of top concern to so many people. And so I'm gonna say two things about it. One, we have to make sure that we have an education system and a workforce development system that ensures that people are prepared for the jobs of the future. I think for a long time, uh, especially in this corner of Oregon, we've we've been having fights about last century's industries. We're still fighting the battles, the cultural battles and the economic battles um, of the 80s and 90s when what we really need to be doing in the old hockey phrase is skating to where the puck is going making sure that we set up Oregon as a a proving ground for wind technology, as I said, regenerative agriculture right here in the Valley, making tourism uh, a a ladder to the middle class, just like logging was in the last century. We know tourism is an important economic driver, especially on the coast, but right now it doesn't provide those types of family wage jobs uh, that logging and manufacturing did in the 20th century. We can do something about that. Uh, And so I I think it's important to to think through how we do that. one more sort of piece, and, and I mentioned this uh, in the context of uh, tax reform for corporate America, but right now we have a tax credit system that is completely backwards. We have, we have this thing called the Opportunity Zone Credit that subsidizes luxury hotel and condominium development in the middle of cities like Portland. It's subsidizing a Ritz-Carlton hotel right now. Uh, and yet many smaller communities in our district aren't even eligible, small businesses in our communities. It's completely backward. We have to change that. Uh, and I think that's part of making sure that economic opportunity is truly shared by everyone. Let's
0: talk about wages because in Oregon, minimum wage is higher than on the on the federal on the national yep. level, and so you're going to be working in Washington. So, like your your goal is to convince or to explain to people why it hasn't made our you know hair catch on fire in Oregon when we've been that way. Because in places like Oklahoma and I think in Florida the minimum wage can be as low as like $2 if you're a service worker because they they say plus tips, you know, and it's, I mean, it's criminal, you know? And so we have seen uh, an increase in wages here, but I think that this is something that the average person really is interested in hearing about about, there has been repercussions. We've seen the inflation. I personally think that the increase in wages allows for a little bit more choice for the consumer. So yes, things cost a little bit more, but you have control over where you put your money. So I think one of the main things to see is we need to figure out ways to keep the costs of housing down, you know, with rent and with just mortgage and buying a home and make it easier for first time home, homeowners and whatnot. But what are your thoughts on wages and, and what would you do in Washington to kind of explain why nationally we need a national uh, uh, minimum wage high increase, you know?
1: Sure, sure. So two things on wages and then I hope we get to talk about housing a little bit. Um, first on wages, uh, I mean, the the real value of the federal minimum wage has collapsed since it was first put in place in, uh, in the 60s. Um, It it is. You use the word criminal. I think it is criminal, uh, and I I think it needs to be raised. Now, in Oregon, we have a really interesting uh, and, I think, novel model that recognizes that the cost of living in different parts of the state um, uh, may necessitate different minimum wages. So we actually have three minimum wages here in Oregon, one in Portland and the surrounding metro counties, one in the rest of the Willamette Valley, and one outside of that area covering the rest of the state, three different minimum wages here in Oregon. And I actually think a model like that on a nation wide level might be worth considering. Um, Because again, while I support a $15 minimum wage for everybody, it's going to be very difficult to get that through Congress. And so one of the things that you could do, and this speaks to showing respect uh, and and understanding of, of, of sort of different places in the country, is saying, okay, well, why don't we come up with a Three-part system, um, where if the if the living way if the um, uh, cost of living is above a certain threshold, it's one minimum wage. If it's in the middle, it's another minimum wage, and if it's uh, lower, it's a third minimum wage. I think trying innovative mechanisms like that, which we've tried right here in Oregon on a national level is worth it. Uh and so I, I I would be uh working hard with people across the country in rural and urban America to try to think through what that might look like. Secondly with wages. Uh the government can do some some things. But there's no substitute for organized labor in this. No substitute for it. Uh we know it. The the the, the graphs if you look at the you know the percentage of Americans who are uh, in a labor union and the percentage of Americans uh who are getting a living wage it It's 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 both going down. Um, They're in lockstep. And so that's what's so inspiring about uh, so many young people, especially at places like Starbucks right here in in Eugene and around the country, organizing and trying to get uh, rights for themselves uh, through organized labor. Corporate America is very powerful. It's going to take advantage uh, of people on the other side if there's not a countervailing force. And I'm not anti-corporate America, but I do think there needs to be some balance. And that's why uh, it's incredibly important for Congress to act, uh, act on both the PRO Act and other types of, of labor legislation that allows more people to organize.
0: So housing, you know, you wanted to talk about housing. I didn't really prepare much for questions, but there's and there's so much to talk about. But yeah. what are some ways that we can, you know push for affordable housing and keep people in their homes. I think that w- with homelessness, I think the most important thing that we can, or there's so many things, but one of the most important things is to keep people in their homes before that mm-hmm, we even get yeah. to that point. So mm-hmm. what are some of your plans for that?
1: Sure. So, and this is an area and I spoke to being an independent earlier. This is an area where I think, um, the the political establishment in Oregon has really let us down. Um, we are last in the country uh in in homelessness per capita here in the city of Eugene since 1991 Oregon has the third uh, highest housing appreciation of any state in the country uh, and we've built the second fewest homes per capita of any state. Um, those things are connected uh, and that's a failure of our leadership uh, to address it to see it coming uh, and to take concrete action. Uh, now we have taken concrete action in Oregon in recent years. Very recently we uh, the state uh, legislature passed a bill that will allow more construction of duplexes, triplexes, uh, cottage apartments, more multifamily housing. I think that's incredibly important, and I think it needs to happen on the federal level. Congress can use the power of the federal government to encourage states to adopt reforms like that, get rid of restrictive zoning laws uh, that were put in place for largely racist reasons um uh, and 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 that uh that obstruct our ability to to build livable uh, dense communities um not everything's going to be new york city uh, it's and it shouldn't be uh but we do need to make sure that multifamily housing can be in more places uh, so that's one thing the second thing is that we need to actually fund our housing voucher program right now there's years long waiting list for housing vouchers for people at the lowest incomes um and that's an amazing thing because you would never go into a hospital uh, as a low income person in America and have to fill out an application for Medicaid and said, yeah, come back in two years, then maybe you'll be eligible then. It's a human right. And that's the case with healthcare and it's the case with housing. And so we need to fully fund housing vouchers. Um, uh, and how do you do that? Well, one way you do it is by fundamentally turning around the, the tax code that right now supports, you know, Luxury developers like the former president and others um, and 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 millionaires um, um, through various uh, credits and deductions and make sure that we get that help where it's needed most at the lower end. Um, uh, And then finally, I wanna talk about housing first models. You said, you talked about how important it is to keep people in their homes and you're absolutely right about that. And the vouchers can really be of help with that. But we also need to get people into a home and then try to solve the problems that led uh, to homelessness in the first place. Housing first models can do this. This, These are models where you build supportive housing. You have wraparound services like mental health care and substance abuse treatment on site. Right now, Oregon is 50th out of 50 in substance abuse treatment access, 49th in terms of mental health access. We need to do better. Uh, And so we need the federal government and Congress to invest in these types of housing first models. That's how we get people back on their feet. And then we use the increase in supply and the voucher system to keep people in their homes.
0: So that's, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because housing first was something that I had heard a lot. You know, people talk about with the housing, first model, housing, first model. And I'm, I'm, I'm somebody that will admit my uh, shortcomings openly. And so I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? So I did a whole podcast on this where I interviewed uh, a woman from shelter care and we talked about it and it's exactly what you said. It's getting people that are, that have found themselves to be homeless, getting them into a home before we, uh, you know, cause everybody's like, well, if they could just get sober, they could get into a home or whatever it is. That's not realistic, you know? And so I love that. And so if you're interested in learning more about uh, the housing first model, go back and listen to my podcast. If you're listening to this, you can go back and listen to the podcast uh, with shelter care. I did like a four part series on, on affordable housing in Oregon. And, and that was super, super informative. So there's a lot there
1: subscribe to patty while you're yeah
0: subscribe on wherever you're listening or watching this podcast for sure uh you know and and i've been doing my best to to not only uh showcase some of these stories of the underrepresented but also learn i've learned so much from doing this so vote well let's go move on to voting rights voting rights is is so important for the future of our democracy and i do not know how we can convince people on the extremes that you know our system in place is actually trustworthy. So what is why is it that it, it is so important for the future of our democracy?
1: Yeah, it's a foundational piece. Um I, I, my my hero is uh the late congressman John Lewis, uh a, a man who who put his body on the line for for America and her ideals many times. Um my my firstborn child is named Selma, so I'm 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 uh I'm I'm deeply grateful for, for uh, Congressman Lewis's patriotism. I've said that, you know, he, he, he belongs on, on, on currency in this country. Um, And uh, you know, what he was fighting for on on the Edmund Pettus bridge and what so many have fought for in the, in the generation since, was that basic right of citizenship, the ability to vote, the ability to make your voice heard uh, in your government, and the ability to have that government be responsive to your needs. Um, Now, it has been a fight. The The Voting Rights Act didn't end the story. Uh, and we've seen, of course, the Supreme Court uh, rolling back even protections that the Voting Rights Act uh, seemed to enshrine. Uh, so this fight is going to continue. The war is never over on this. People will always seek to uh, protect power and privilege. Um, and so I think what we need to do is appeal to uh, the better angels of people's nature about what America is. The moment this gets partisan, the moment it gets polarized, is the moment that it dies. Um, And there's a lot of criticisms that people can make about about, uh, Joe Manchin. Um, I've made plenty myself. But I don't think he's wrong to be concerned about passing voting rights bills that are exclusively partisan. I I, I think that that's something that you should be concerned about, uh, because, of course, Um, uh, the Republican Party might come to power at some point again. And then what happens, right? And so we have to try to create that big tent um, that once again reiterates what the basic rights of American citizenship are. Uh, And so I do think that taking an anti-partisan lens to this, and I've I've written about this, and I'm happy to share that in the show notes, an anti-partisan lens to voting rights is important. What does that mean? Well, what it means is making sure that we get rid of partisan redistricting. We just went through a process here in Oregon, um, and the Democrats uh, 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 gerrymandered uh, the new lines uh, to their benefit. We see Republicans in, in other states do the same. That weakens the trust in American democracy. It's all about politicians picking their their, uh, people instead of the other way around. It needs to end, and uh, and there's huge public support for independent redistricting commissions, and we can establish that at the federal level. Similarly, we got to get rid of closed primary systems. We have that in Oregon. We're one of only a few states left that does, where only registered Democrats can vote in the primary. Only registered Republicans can vote in the primary. There's this huge set of people in the middle, actually more non-affiliated voters in Oregon than any other party. They tend to be younger. They tend to be poor. They tend to be less white. And yet they're completely disenfranchised from the primary system. That's wrong. Uh, And and we need to recognize that and change it. Um, We also need to uh, make sure that we come together like we did 20 years ago next month uh, as the anniversary of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance legislation. Come together as a country and say, we need to Shore up our campaign finance laws, and by shore up I mean have campaign finance laws uh, that end dark money, uh, that require disclosure. Again, this is rebuilding the fabric of democracy. This is rebuilding people's trust in the system, and this is bringing people uh, together to say we don't want the system to be rigged. And this is important because the the vote you can you can understand why the vote concerns about voting rights might get. drawn into party politics, but campaign finance, you go to a rural conservative community in the South and you say, do you want big business buying your elections? And they say, hell no. Right. This is something that unites us. And if we have leaders who will stand up and not only say the right things about overturning Citizens United, but lead by example, as I have no fossil fuel money, no corporate PAC money, unlike others in this primary, then that will matter. That will really matter, uh, and so this is not going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Dr. King. Was it easy for John Lewis? It's not going to be easy for the next generation of leaders either. Uh, but it's a fight that is at the foundation of our democracy. We don't have any choice but to but to take it on.
0: So you had mentioned, you know, closed primaries versus open primaries. Uh, what are your thoughts on star voting or rank choice voting? I've I've done a lot of coverage on star voting. I think it's amazing. I think that it really brings bipartisan support or or, or non-affiliated support it's really what what is most important and and rank choice has been done I believe in in this country star voting there's always these goofy things about how it's kind of like oh at the last minute maybe some of these signatures aren't enough and it gets fought off you know from being on the ballot. it was I believe in Eugene it was on the ballot but it was worded because it's star stands for score then automatic runoff it's an acronym right and they didn't every all the promos were done as being called star voting and then on the ballot it didn't say star it they didn't they wouldn't put it because then people didn't even know it was there and that's done by design where you know the people in power want to stay in power like you said and so so They'll kind of like these little wordings. I mean, a lot of times it's like a yes vote means no, and a no means yes, and so it's super confusing on the ballot. But that's a whole different issue. We could be here forever. I'll talk to the secretary of state about that. Uh, but, but star voting and ranked choice voting. Uh, what are your thoughts on those?
1: Yeah. So I I I think that these are innovative mechanisms that need to be tested. And te- when I say need to be tested, I mean at the local and state level. Let's let's use. America's federalism as a, as a testing ground. Let's learn about what we need to do to educate voters about these systems. That's the biggest concern with these systems. It's not that they are, are not good ideas. I think they are, and I think they can enhance democracy. But they are also, they can be confusing, which means that you need to do in advance of election, lots of voter education in every language, in every community. Uh, because what the last thing you want is for something like STAR or RCV to be a barrier to the ballot to, to actually turn people away because they can't even understand, wait, I don't even, you know, I I'm used to checking one box and voting for eight an individual Andrew, what am I supposed to do here? I'm supposed to fill in numbers. Like which one is the right. So I think it, we need to experiment with it. New York city has ranked choice voting, just did it for the mayoral election. Uh, I, I think this is, this is worth trying and, and an automatic runoff, which makes, makes, uh, makes things more efficient because you don't have to go back to the ballot box again. Um, So I am all for testing this. I I think we should test it out in the States before we bring it to the federal election uh, stage. Um, But I, but I like it uh, and I think it has a lot of promise. I
0: think it's, I think star voting is incredible and I'll be doing more coverage on it because I think that, like you said, there's so many people in the middle and it gives more chances of representation. And I'm really, really hoping that Eugene tries this because I think it would be a perfect, uh, area for it. You know, you've got so many so many different voices that are being you know, Eugene is prominent predominantly left, var very far left. And so I think that having the opportunity to have a lot more voices heard from could be really good. And I think that people on the right might actually appreciate that in a town like Eugene. So we'll see what can happen with that. So if you're not familiar with star voting just Google that star voting, rank choice voting. It's it's really where we need to head with our voting. And yes, it's a little bit more work, but this is our responsibility as people, as citizens, is to educate ourselves. You know that we're gonna talk a little bit in in a, in a bit about misinformation. And it's like if we don't actually do the due diligence and, and educate ourselves, then we're just gonna believe whatever's thrown at us, and that's a problem. So speaking of educating ourselves, I wanted to talk about teachers. So you, you are the son of public school teachers and this last two, two year stretch is the hardest that I can even imagine for teachers. So teachers are on the brink of just walking out. I hear it all the time. I've got a lot of friends that are educators. My stepson is, is, uh, pursuing a career in education and I'm like, almost just, just like, I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) You know, and, (laughs) and what can we do? right now to support our teachers
1: it's a great question and it it is i think it is harder than it's ever been and it's never been easy uh my, my parents uh loved teaching it was a passion of theirs um mother was a national teacher of the year and yet they said the same thing to me and my sister growing up like don't you dare be a teacher this is this is an extraordinarily hard uh profession um um, and so, and, and indeed just last night I was, I was at the Oregon Education Association, um, conference and was asked almost exactly the same question, Patty, which is how do we keep teachers in the profession? Um, and my answer uh, to that question will be the same for you. First of all, money matters. Uh, so, you know, we can talk a big game about caring about teachers, understanding it's one of the most important professions in our society, but you got to pay them. You got to pay them more. You got to pay them like the professionals that they are, Uh, and that's particularly the case at the younger level. There are some states especially who have sort of escalators uh, for teachers, uh, but you have to hang around for 10, maybe 20 years to to take advantage of those. We need to raise that base. Uh, That's very important to attracting people and then having them stay because like any other job, practice makes perfect. The more the more you're in the classroom, the better you're going to get at it. Uh, I saw that with my own parents, and I'm, I'm sure others uh, have as well. Uh, and so you got to pay more. Secondly, you got to make sure they have the resources they need to be the most effective teachers. Uh, because again, teaching is a passion profession. People go into it because they want to make a difference for the next generation. Um, and yet right now in the state of Oregon, uh, we are 50th out of 50 states in providing teachers with professional development that includes evidence-based reading instruction. And as a result, fewer than half of our third graders are proficient in reading. Uh, And that's not the teacher's fault. It's the fault of government for not providing teachers with the opportunity to have that cutting edge professional development they need and not to have professional development opportunities when they go home off the clock. This is this should be paid time. This is part of their job uh, to continue to to uh, have that professional development opportunity. So I think those are the two key th- things. You, you have to you have to uh, make sure that uh, they are treated as professionals in terms of their paycheck, but you also have to have the resources in place to actually make sure that they can make the most of the profession. Uh, and I th- I think with those two pieces, we're going to have a lot more people um, uh, both getting into and staying in the profession
0: yeah and then i mean we could be here for days talking about school board meetings and i mean it's chaotic when saturday night live is mocking school board meetings yeah <laughs> that's not a good sign so so uh i want to talk a little bit about uh, you know on your website it says that you worked with the uh, the aclu as a civil rights attorney the aclu right. fights to protect free speech so this is a really long-winded thing but what is the government's role in limiting hate limiting hate speech and misinformation in a public square and then i want to talk a little bit about what the government's role may or may not be in regulating social media so first what is the government's role in limiting hate speech and misinformation in a public square
1: so uh, just this past week uh in eugene there was uh, a, a series of incidents where there was um transphobic and anti-semitic uh, uh graffiti in, in various places and I, I think what what mayor venice did standing up and saying this is unacceptable it's it, it does not represent our community we are an inclusive place i think that's exactly what government leaders should be doing when hate speech happens um uh i i think that uh that that speaking as as sort of one community and saying this is not, this is not welcome here is incredibly important um I remember in law school when the, the Westboro Baptist Church, was, which is an extremist group, came to our campus uh, to protest, uh, people stood up and, and and said to them, you know, your message, sure, you might have the right to, to, to say your message, but let make no mistake. this is not you are not speaking for us uh, and your type of hate is not wanted here. And I think that that's an incredibly powerful thing. much more powerful actually than having the government ban speech uh, because we've also seen in recent days when the government tries to ban speech, uh, often one person's you know, hate speech is another person's great literature. I mean, we've seen Toni Morrison books being pulled from curriculum in, in places like Texas. So uh, we have to be very careful when we enable the government to make those decisions. Uh, and as an ACLU lawyer, I, I, I certainly uh, come down more on the side of, of free speech. Now, of course, when hate speech turns into harassment or when it turns into threats – that's different. The government has to have uh, an enforcement role there, uh, and uh, in the disinformation sphere, I think it's incredibly important that social media companies are pushed by their users to eliminate uh, misinformation and disinformation. We saw it on on Spotify uh, in, in this past month with with Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, and we've seen it in other situations as well. Um, I, I think that the government's role in that again is. Has to be somewhat limited, but we, what the government should be doing is making sure that there's no um, there's no misinformation among people who uh, hold themselves out as the purveyors of good information. So, just one example of that, there are these things called crisis pregnancy centers that are out there uh, uh, spewing misinformation about abortion, uh, the effects of abortion, uh, and they they stand themselves up as as healthcare facilities. Um, I think the government can take action there uh, and, and say, "Look, if you if you set yourself up to look like a healthcare facility, you have to provide actual information, uh, not not just propaganda." But by and large, um, I think what's most important is for the community to stand up and say, "This is not acceptable," and, and that's what I'd like to see going forward.
0: The Joe Rogan one, it, because this is a podcast, I want to talk about it a little more because sure, yeah. because with Joe Rogan, it's such a nuanced thing. And I know I'm yeah. going to get, I mean, even opening my mouth on this, people are going to be mad because I won't remove Spotify. I use Spotify. I love Spotify. My my podcast is hosted through Spotify. I also am a musician and Spotify screws me. <laughs> like there's no question. There's no question, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. because I make nothing off of it. And I also don't make good music, but that's a different story. I am a, I'm a firm believer. In, I'm an, I'm a free speech absolutist, you know, where, yeah. where I, I feel like it's our responsibility to educate ourselves I listened to the interview with Robert Malone, I think is his name, mm-hmm. and it was contradictory completely. And I'm not a very educated man. I'm a barber. I went to high school and I barely graduated because I was a slacker. But that being said, I knew listening to it, I'm like, this is nonsense, but it's really difficult to navigate because because it sounds like he's credible. He's got all these credentials. You know, he worked in starting mRNA vaccines, he was, you know, and so you you hear this. And so for a lot of people, it's really difficult and I like what you're saying because it's true. It's like what the government's role is not that that's the public's job, but man, we are combating something we've never seen before with the internet and just the, the, how much, you know? And so I, I like, like what you were saying about those, uh, those groups for uh, uh, what was it called? Like the, the birthing ones.
1: Oh, the crisis pregnancy centers.
0: Yeah. I know what you're talking about. And there's gotta be something that it's like you, if you're going to put this online, you have to say like, this is not a, you know, whatever, because it's mis misrepresenting it. Right. This is and not so a doctor's office. The right. fact-checking, but fact-checking is tough. I don't know where the question's at, but what, I mean, what are your thoughts on the Joe Rogan debate? You know, I mean...
1: It- well, again, I think, uh, so the, the, the issue with Rogan, um, like the issue with so many others, is that uh, we can quickly retreat to our partisan corners about it. Uh, it becomes sort of an article of faith that You need to get rid of Spotify. And I think people need to pause and. Just remember that the exact same thing can happen to somebody who you agree with and will and and, and has, right? Again, Tony Morrison books in Texas, Uh, not just Morrison, plenty of other things teaching about um, teaching about uh, gender fluidity, teaching about uh, sexual orientation. These, these have been pulled from curriculum in many States. This is not a hypothetical. This is. uh, And so I, 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 I agree with you, Patty and Let's be clear. Let's not sell yourself short. You, you, you might not have some fancy degree, that doesn't mean you're not smart as no, hell. No, formally uh, and educated. so yeah, uh, yeah, and, and and so I think I think there are plenty of people like that in this in this district in this country, um, and I do think that we need to get back to an an era in which people seek out truth rather than ideology. That people question their own bubble, which is exacerbated by social media. Um, that people have an independent mind about things and, and analyze for themselves who they think is best to lead them and, and what, what's, what, what the facts are. I'm certainly trying to make that case in this race. Um, this is a first and 36-year open seat race. Um, we need a competition of visions here. We need people to tune in uh, like they're doing with this podcast right now, listen to the people who are trying to be their leaders, and decide for themselves – who's credible who has the experience who has the approach to leadership that i want Uh, and i think that that's so important and as you said there's no substitute for it in a democracy you've got to be an active engaged citizen uh and uh and i'm relying on on you and everybody else to to do just that
0: i just think it's so important that we talk to people and listen to people that we don't don't know about don't agree with i had a customer in my chair i'm a barber that's how we became aware of your campaign is is my 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 boss my the guy that owns the shop was cutting your hair and, right. and he's like, great you got to have him on. The, yeah, he's he's amazing. And he's like, you got to have him on the show. You know, he's a great guy. And I, I just I had this guy in my chair and I'm not going to use his name, of course, but he was a black man and he's a student at the U of O. And and this should be alarming for people. And he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish my time here. I'm three years in. I'm not sure if I'm going to do my fourth year. I might go back to Ohio where I'm from. I'm having a hard time keeping friends. And I said, wow, mm-hmm. keeping friends. What do you mean? And he's like, well, I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm gay and I'm a Republican. <laughs> so, so I said, whoa. And he's like, people hear me. And, you know, I've been told this. I need to be heard. I need to be heard. My voices should be heard. And when I started speaking, uh, you know, th- I'm paraphrasing. But he said, when I started speaking, people were like, no, 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 you can't say that. That's not. And he's like, wait mm-hmm. a minute. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be heard, you know. And so then we got mm-hmm. to talk and we had a great conversation. I vehemently disagree with a lot of his views. He disagrees with mine. That's mm-hmm. totally acceptable. I told him I was like, what about Candace Owens? He's like, oh my God, I love her. And I'm like, she's bought and paid for. She's not real. You know, that's not a real thing. These people, some of these YouTubers and whatnot, they're not actually believing what they talk about. Tommy Loren is one of the most egregious. Where it's like manufactured dissent. They're they're creating this anger and this and this whatnot for the algorithms and for clickbait. We have to be better than this, people. You know, you know, and I know that. I, in my heart of hearts, don't think that that's Joe Rogan's goal, but I think that once he got onto the Spotify contract, it became more apparent that maybe it was. Initially, that's not why he started his campaign, but when you're getting hundreds of million dollars thrown at you, there's stipulations. There's no question that that's not the case. So I just told him, I'm like, be careful that when it comes to politics and pundits and all the the radio hosts, that there's, it's ironic because I'm kind of one of these people on a small scale, but be careful because there is no such thing as a safe haven. There's not a right answer. You know, there's a lot of people's views that you have to come up with your own truth, like you had said. And so, I mean, there is the truth <laughs> and there's our individual truth. You know what I mean? As far as just the way we perceive things. Sure. So, So I just think when somebody is a black, gay Republican and they are not able to keep friends because their views don't align – with other people, that should be pretty alarming. You know what I mean? Like we should be seeing people for, for who they are is in their hearts. And he was a kind young guy, you know, he's awesome. And we were yucking it up and laughing and we're going to counteract each other's votes when it comes time for the election. But, but I think he's as important as I am in this, in this country. And then, and in this, you know, this project of America, but so the election is May 17th. We've got a couple more questions and then we're going to get out of here. I guess I kind of just talked about it, but how do we work together and bridge the divide in our society?
1: Well, that was a great story, Patty, Uh, and I I appreciate your your approach to this because we need more barbershop style conversations of the kind you just described in America. And I'm very clear about this uh, on my website. And every time I I talk on the campaign trail, I think we rebuild the fabric of of democracy one conversation at a time. And that means uh, that's hard work and that's painstaking. We want to just snap our fingers and have it be back to you know the way it once was in terms of, again, the fabric of democracy, uh, but that's not the way things work. We have to rebuild trust. You mentioned trust earlier. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens by having leaders who show respect, who show up, who listen, who are humble in the face of uncertainty. I know for certain that I do not know the answer to every one of the challenges facing America, and I can guarantee you one thing, if I'm a member of Congress, uh, that I will make mistakes. But I'll hold myself accountable to those mistakes, and I hope you hold me accountable to them too. Uh, and I hope that uh, when uh, when I make those mistakes, I'll learn from them, and you can help me out, and help me be better. Uh, because I think that's what great leaders do. Um, they don't dig in their heels, become defensive, just retreat to their party corner. They really try to build those bridges, to, to your question. Um, and it starts with respect. It really does. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're any less passionate in fighting for what you believe in. It doesn't mean that you're 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 not gonna uh go back to, to DC and, and, and try to achieve your objectives, but it does mean that you're doing so in a way that is trying to bring people with you. It's that old Ruth Bader-Ginsburg quote about fighting like heck for the for the principles you believe in, but doing so in a way that attracts people, doesn't repel them. And I think that that has actually been a problem in our corner of the progressive movement. I think we have alienated Significant portions of the public. Some of that is not our fault. Some of it is, uh, and I think having those one-on-one conversations, like you in the in the in the barbershop chair, are incredibly important. Uh, and uh, I, I don't see any other way of doing it than that. And I've done that throughout my entire career. I mean, there's plenty of people who who disagree, um, uh, at, whether it was at the ACLU or whether it was in, when I worked at city government or whether it was in my job at Airbnb. Airbnb is something that people have a lot of opinions on. Uh, But again, I'm I'm attracted to those hard challenges Um, and Congress doesn't get the easy ones. They get the hard ones. Pick somebody in this election who's attracted to those hard challenges.
0: As a barber, I'm lucky because I get to talk to people that are gay black Republicans. I get to talk to truck drivers. I get to talk to Saudi Arabians because it's on Mm -hmm. campus. And so Mm -hmm. gay Saudi Arabians (laughs) And, and, you know, just. Across the board, but there's a conservative crowd that will come in and, and we really have to button it up about what we're talking about when it comes to politics, because you want to be respectful and not be in someone's face. They're trying to just get a haircut, sure. you know, but there's, there's a, there's a common conversation about just society and the common good. And there's common threads like family and things that, you know, you really trust in each other. And that at the end of the day, that's what we all care about is, is making sure that we can put food on our family. Like Bush said, you know, got to put food on our yeah. family. That's <laughs> so, right. so so anyways That's right andrew kalik may 17th primary by mail you'll get your ballots you know probably early may there's so many important things this is a primary a lot of times people don't turn out you got to turn out i mean let your voice be heard because there's going to be so many seats you know everyone listening to this that are so vital i think i'm a, i'm going to be working as much as i can to push uh you know Everyone to educate themselves on candidates like or, or like the reelection bid for Joe Bernie, running for county commissioner in Lane County. Joe Bernie is incredible. You know, and then this seat is just monumental for Oregon. I mean, it's it's 36, 37 years that Peter DeFazio has had that seat. And he's gonna be hard to replace, you know, and and for somebody uh, you know, a freshman. Congressman, I think that's what they call it. (laughs) It's going to be very difficult because he was the head of committees, you know. And so there's also that that I've learned from this podcast. I'm always I used to think we need fresh voices. We need fresh voices. And that is absolutely true. But it's also true that you need people in Washington that represent your state that have power. And that takes time, you know, so you got to be in it for the long haul.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Peter was uh, on, on primary day in 1986. I think Peter was 38 years old and I'll be 38 years old on primary day. I think it is important. I mean, Congress works on a seniority model. You gotta, you gotta dig in your heels and 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 rise the ladder. Uh, that's just the way it works. Um, but I also think, to your point, Patty, you know, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for this district to think about where it is, where it wants to go. This election is about the future, not the past. What what do you want in that next generation of leadership uh, in in DC, and who do you think has the skills, the experience, and the perspective to deliver real results uh, back here? Um, it's an incredibly consequential choice. And so, to your point, not only do I want you Democrats to get out there and vote, but if you're a non-affiliated voter, you say, "No, I don't really. I'm not really a Republican or a Democrat. I get it. I get it." But just register as a Democrat in this race so that you have a voice in the future of this district. This is the time you could go back to being a non-affiliated voter. Yeah, yeah. register as a Democrat. You've got, you know, six weeks to do that roughly yeah. uh, from when we're taping, do that so that you can make your voice heard. It's really important. Um, and uh, and obviously I, I would be grateful for your vote check out andrewcalc.com be part of this campaign uh it's a grassroots effort all individual contributions no corporate pack money um and we're trying to win and we're trying to win the right way and with your help we'll get there
0: well it's very great to talk to you today thank you so much for giving me some of your time i know you're thank busy you, this is a busy busy task what is your wife thinking about you running i'm sure she's like don't do it don't do it i'm sure she's supportive but
1: Luckily, my 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 spouse, who's a, a Pleasant Hill uh, graduate and a U of O graduate, um, is an incredibly supportive person. We have three children under five. We're bringing in the Calvary. My parents are here for a couple of weeks, helping out too. I'm, I'm grateful. It does take a village to run for office, uh, and I and I'm doing this to try to bring real results uh, to people's lives, uh, not only my kids but but yours as well. So thanks for the tie, Patty. I'm yeah. grateful.
0: So thank you so much, Andrew Callic. Andrew Uh, May 17th. Happy birthday on May 17th, by the way. That's wild that that's the same day. And I did not know that about Peter DeFazio having the same experience getting elected on his birthday. So uh, we're going to... Hey, thank you so much. We're going to end this with a song. I chose this. uh, This is me, Patty Rose with Never Enough. I was disconnected
2: but still affected by those who I surrounded. Me. Had less interest I felt so distant, my tears they were drowning. Me. But now I see the standards are set from within. I found the strength to not sink, I swim. I give thanks to the motivators, released and hate from every place. Tip my cap to the glow creators. My smiles on a child face. This is the only purpose worth it. Every parent knows that no one is perfect. You can give it your all, but it's never enough. You can try and stand tall, but you never feel tough. You can mask carry insecurities and bottle up your fears inside, but a part of you still high You can give it your all, but it's never enough. You can try and stand tall, but you never feel tough. You can mask your insecurities and bottle up your fears inside, but a part of Behind a hardened exterior Inside you feel you're inferior You're handcuffed, can't live up, don't give up Just get up and dust yourself off The trust that can be gone If you lie to yourself about the level of courtesy Help no one, you're no fun, it hurts to see Narcissism succeed, decisions in need All your loved ones get desperate and they feel they should leave inside but a part of you still hide you can give it your all but it's never enough you can try and stand tall but you never feel tough you can masquerade your insecurities and bottle up your fears inside but a part you still hide, you can give it your all, but it's never enough. You can try and stand tall, but you never feel tough. You can mask your insecurities, and bottle up your fears inside, but a part of you still hide. You can give it your all, but it's never enough. You can try and stand tall, but you never feel tough. You can mask your insecurities, and bottle up your fears inside, but a part of you still hide.